0: Okay, uh, while everybody's uh, settling down and finding their seat, as you notice, especially those who are watching, if they can see through camera, that we're having vacation Bible school. And so the auditorium has been transformed a little bit, and so we have banners and posters and all kinds of things in here, and only one side of the auditorium has seats. So... It's a, um, they should have known that, see, you're on my left, y'all are never on, should never be on my left, you are always on my right, right is, the sheep and the goats, remember, the sheep go to the right and the goats go to the left. So anyhow, uh, just a reminder of announcements that uh, Vacation Bible School is one more day, I've heard some good reports on Vacation Bible School, I know that there's a couple of people here who don't seem to be too exhausted from vacation Bible school, but it's going well. And the others are recuperating for their last last day. Also, just a reminder of the uh, trips. We host trips to the Bible lands, all of these lands, Egypt. Some people go, why Egypt? Well, Egypt plays a huge part in the Bible. And so it's important to go to these places and to get some historical background and cultural background And that helps inform us as to what is going on uh, in the scriptures. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. So we come together to study the word this evening. We need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. That means that we need to be walking by the Spirit. But when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit or walking according to the Spirit. We're walking according to our sin nature, where we're letting our sin nature uh, dictate uh, our policies and procedures and how we live and how we think. And so we need to confess sin, which simply means that in silent prayer, we admit or acknowledge to God our sins and instantly we're forgiven. And cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to... Be free in this nation, free to assemble, free to teach your word, free to proclaim the gospel, and Father, we pray that we will continue to enjoy those freedoms, that our government will continue to recognize that these freedoms, these liberties, do not derive from the government, they derive from you. They are part of who we are as those who have been created in your image and likeness. Father, we pray that we would continue to have leaders who will understand the the vital concepts that undergird uh, this nation and have made this nation uh, a wonderful beacon of light in the world, a source of biblical knowledge, as we have had churches here proclaim the truth and teach it and send missionaries out throughout the world. And Father, also, we have been a support for the Jewish people, for a national homeland for the Jewish people in Israel, and continue to support Israel. And for those reasons, we pray that you would continue to uh, bless this nation, that you would raise up uh, godly men and women who can lead us and direct us and maintain our freedoms. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might be faithful and steadfast in our study of your word and our application of it in our lives, that we might dedicate ourselves to transforming our minds, so that we can be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, tonight we are continuing our study in 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, we have been going through not only the episodes, the stories, the events, the people from 1 Samuel all the way through now into 2 Samuel 7, But we have also taken the time to pursue some significant topical studies, one of which is the, the center of 2 Samuel 7, which is looking at the Davidic covenant. And so we have been looking at what the Bible teaches about the Davidic covenant now for several months. And the reason is that this is a foundational covenant. We often find people that spend a lot of time studying the Abrahamic covenant, they spend a lot of time studying the New Covenant because that seems to be related to the church age. I don't believe the New Covenant will uh, is part of the church age. It is the future. It is what is promised to Israel when they come into their kingdom. But the Davidic Covenant is also very significant, and we've gone through passages that related to it throughout the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament. And one of the most significant passages that is really a a prayer based on the Davidic covenant, and that is Psalm 89. So we've been taking our time to go through Psalm 89, and it is an extremely rich psalm with lots of uh, just incredible information, especially about the character of God, because it's a prayer for God to not forget his covenant with David, to restore the Davidic monarchy, or to strengthen it at at the very least, and so it is it it reflects on the the character of God his integrity that undergirds undergirds that uh that covenant last week we came down to the section where we're talking about God elevating David and we focused on the fact that he he was seeking for someone who would be loyal to him and he it is said in acts chapter 13 as well as in 1 Samuel, that David is a man that was after God's own heart. So what I want to do this evening is talk about what that means to be a believer who is after God's heart. What exactly does that mean, and why is that so important? So as we do this, just a reminder of where we've been in Psalm 89, that there's three basic divisions to the psalm. The first focuses on God's love and his faithfulness, praising his character. That's what undergirds all promises. Every single time we claim a promise, every time we read about a promise, what guarantees it is the character of God, his righteousness and his justice. He will do what he has said he will do. And that's covered in the first 18 verses. Then in verses 19 through 37, which is where we are now, the promise to David, the the covenant itself is rehearsed. New information is given in this section that's not in the Second Samuel 7 passage. And then we'll get to the petition itself in the last section, verses 38 down to 52. Now, as we have gotten into this section... Get past that slide. Okay. As we get to this section... The middle section, talking about God's promise to David, that's the foundation for the psalmist's prayer. And the application for that is when we pray, we ought to think about how the psalms are structured. We ought to think about focusing first on God and his character, thinking through each aspect of his essence, his sovereignty, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his eternality, his omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence his immutability, his veracity, that he is absolute truth. Think about how each of those things relates to whatever problem, whatever situation, chaos, whatever difficulty might uh, be in part of our life. As we look at this middle section, we're looking at God's promise to protect, preserve, and to bless David. And in that section, the psalmist talks about how God raised up David that he elevated him to his position David was choice why was David choice he was choice because he was a man after after God's own heart and we saw in verse 20 that God uses this interesting excuse me God uses this interesting expression that he found David it's a bit of what we call an anthropomorphism. That is where we attribute to God something human that isn't actually the case, but it helps us to connect with God and to understand what God, what is being said about God. That usually the word to find, which is the Hebrew word matzah, has to do, is often used in contexts where God is seeking something and he finds it. So as we look at that, we're reminded of a, of a verse in Second Chronicles 16, 9, that God's eyes are going to and fro across the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. So God is seeking. It's, again, it's, it's, it's stating this in um, anthropomorphic terms you know, expressing it in human terms so we can understand it better, that he it refers to his omniscience, that he is seeking those who are loyal to him so that he might uh, bless them. We'll learn a little bit more about that as we go along. But this is the idea. And so in two passages, as we were coming to the close last time, we see in verse 14 of 1 Samuel 13 uh, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Saul, uh, Samuel is addressing Saul and and telling him that the kingdom will be taken from him because of his disobedience. And so, in contrast to Saul's disobedience, there's the statement here that that David is a man after God's own heart. Now that helps us to understand that idiom a little better. Because the contrast is, obviously, Saul was not a man after God's own heart. And we'll see tonight that that Saul was arrogant, and Saul disobeyed God. And in contrast, God is looking for someone who is loyal to him, God, someone who is obedient to him, someone who will follow him. And so that's mentioned that the Lord is seeking a man after his own heart, and in acts thirteen twenty two Paul uh, is rehearsing some of the events in the Old Testament, and he goes to David and said that, says that God uh, chose David, establishes, raised him up to be king, and he says, "I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will." So we see this language of finding and seeking. And God is looking for believers who will follow him, who are going to be believers after God's own heart. So we need to understand that. In Psalm 89, three, God says he made a covenant with my chosen, my choice one, literally, I have sworn to my servant David. So part of having a heart for God, a man after God's own heart, is to have that quality of, of being a servant to God that recognizing that we have been bought with a price so we're not our own so we are put on this earth by God to serve Him as believers so three questions came to my mind as I was thinking about this I was thinking what is God looking for For these passages are talking about God's eyes going to and fro throughout the whole earth uh, seeking those who are loyal to him. What is he looking for? He's looking for those who are devoted to him, loyal to him. The Hebrew word there is shalom, which means those who are at peace to him, but it's not just simply that they've been reconciled to God, but it is that they are pursuing that relationship with God. So what is it that God's looking for? What is the character quality that is important? What is the key element that is important for God to have in a leader. When God is looking for a man after his own heart, what exactly does that mean in terms of understanding the character quality in us that God values? So it has to do with this virtue, and what we'll see is it's the virtue of humility and trying to understand what that means. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, we could paraphrase that with the synonym, if anybody wants to follow me, what is God looking for? He's basically looking for someone devoted to him who's willing to follow him and walk in obedience. Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him him, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 19 times in the Gospels, Jesus says to someone, a potential disciple, a disciple, uh, someone else, he says, follow me again and again. What is essential to being a follower of Jesus, not a believer? A believer is someone who simply trusts in Christ as their Savior. They have eternal life. They're adopted into God's royal family. They will go to heaven when they die. But beyond that, Jesus is looking for students, disciples, those who will follow him. And that means to walk in obedience to God. And so the thing that we see here is this idiom, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, what does that mean? Now, if you listen to a certain number of people, you'll hear different interpretations of that. And so it's important to to look and investigate the Roman system of justice. What does it mean to take up your cross? The worst criminals were crucified. Traitors, those who had... uh, uh, gone against the power and the authority of Rome, those who had rebelled against Rome in the worst ways, slaves who revolted, for example, the well-known Spartacus revolt. When those slaves were captured, they were all crucified. Now, in Roman thinking, the way to to truly uh, humiliate them and humble them was that they were forced to carry their cross to the execution place. So the idea of carrying your cross was a sign of now they had been forced to submit to the authority of Rome. So taking up your cross was an idiom that meant submit to the authority of God. Submit yourself to God. That is essential, as we will see, to the whole idea of humility. Humility is such a misunderstood concept in our culture as we'll see as we get into this. So what does the Bible actually teach about humility? To start with, we have to understand what humility is. Now, I did a little exercise today, and I went to some of the key dictionaries to see how they defined humility. And the bottom line is dictionaries are a bad place to go to understand biblical terminology. If you go to the dictionary to get a definition for love, nothing that the dictionary uses to define love is what the Bible means by love. When you get to humility, nothing that, hardly anything that is said, they sort of get close around the edges, but they, it, it's more confusing than it is enlightening. For example, the Concise Oxford English Dictionary says it's the quality of having a humble view of one's own importance. One of the things you learn if you write definitions is you never define a term with a cognate. So if you're looking for humility, you don't define it by being humble. That doesn't clarify anything. It is, uh, and having a humble view of one's own importance is also what? Are we just being, you know, we just have a low self-esteem? Are we running ourselves down? Are we uh, beating up on ourselves? What exactly does that, does that convey? The Collins Dictionary gives a number of different meanings. One is being conscious of one's failings. That flits around the edges because, as we'll see, Paul says in Romans that we are to not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. This is a problem with arrogance. We think we're a lot better than we are, we think we're a lot more virtuous than we are. We have a higher view of ourselves than is actually true because we tend to uh, put on. Uh, rose-colored glasses, and look at ourselves very optimistically because we are born with a high view of ourselves. That's the essence of the sin nature. We are self-absorbed, and we think we're the center of the universe. And if you don't believe me, just go around a baby sometime. Any, any baby, any infant thinks they're the center of the world, and if you don't make them the center of the world, then they'll scream and cry until they get your attention and they become the center of the world. So the idea of, of um of being conscious of one fail one's failings it, it leads to is is based on the idea of having an objective view of yourself. You know your strengths, you know your weaknesses. Unpretentious, the better word would be you're not arrogant. That's the contrast that we see in scripture is the those who are not humble or those who are Disobedient to God, they think more highly of themselves than they ought to think they're, they they are they're arrogant. Uh, lowly doesn't really communicate a whole lot. Uh, third meaning they give is deferential or servile. And deferential can just add the it can can also be very negative. I, I just didn't find any any of these things very helpful. So what we need to do is really look at Scripture. Let God define what He means by these qualities. Romans twelve three. I put two examples, two translations up here on the screen. The first one is from the uh, uh, NET Bible. It's not a bad one. The problem I have is the word one word that it uses, which surprised me, I thought they would have a better word is a, the same word that is used in uh, the in the um, uh, in the new uh, King James version. Paul says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think.' but to think soberly. So the contrast is don't think unrealistically about yourself. Don't think you're greater than you are, better than you are. Uh, That doesn't mean that you shouldn't have confidence in your abilities, but don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And the contrast is to think soberly. Now, we think of sober in contrast to being drunk. What happens when you're drunk is you're not thinking clearly. So what sober means at its core meaning is to think clearly about yourself, think honestly about yourself. And this is what's brought out in the New American Standard uh, definition where it translates this to think so as to have sound judgment. Now, if you're going to have sound judgment on anything, that means you have to understand something. Judgment is always based on knowledge. It's not based on emotion or feeling or your gut reaction or anything like that. You have to think about uh, the criteria. Why, on what basis are you making this evaluation? The only way we can honestly evaluate ourselves is if we know the Word of God. If we understand what God says about our basic human, fallen, sinful condition, can we really be honest with ourselves about who we are and our strengths and our uh, weaknesses. What we see in the Scripture is that humility is a foundational Christian virtue. It's not something that we can produce on our own. In Genesis, uh, excuse me, Galatians 5.28, we see that gentleness, which is a translation of the Greek word prautes, which really has more the idea of humility, is a, a fruit of the Spirit. So that means it's produced in our lives as we walk by the Spirit. As we grow and as we mature, God will transform us and develop genuine humility in us. The idea of, of um, humility as a virtue is significant. A virtue is a character quality. Virtue in the Greek is the word arete. Okay, this is why Camp Arete is called Camp Arete, is to build Christian character, Christian virtue into the lives of the young people that go to Camp Arete. And so in classical Greek, there were uh, certain virtues that that were highlighted. And they were prudence. Prudence is not a word that we use very much anymore. And prudence basically means the careful and thoughtful management of someone's life. So are you carefully managing your life uh, that has that again. You have to be mature. You have to understand what the issues are to make good, thoughtful, wise decisions. So prudence was a classic virtue understood by the Greeks and Romans, and parents were to teach this to their children and instill these virtues into their life. A second classic virtue was justice. Justice had to do with knowing right and wrong and teaching children and teaching young people to do that which was right and avoid that which was wrong. But where do you get those values? Are those values just something that you choose them because you like them? Are these values uh, come from culture, that this is what people around me believe are right and wrong? Or do they have an ultimate eternal source that is absolute, that is the ultimate absolute and most people think of values today as totally relative well that that works for you that morality works for you that that those those values those virtues that works for you but i have different values well how do we know what is true you can't say well everybody has their own system of values so everybody's right because these system of values conflict with everybody it's it's a self defeating Uh, irrational argument Uh, we have to if we believe certain things are right certain things are wrong that's how we act we use these terms as absolutes then we need to think carefully about well where am i getting my values the only place that we can get eternal values is from the word of god because god is eternal a third virtue is um has to do with perseverance and endurance, and that means basically sticking to it, and then a fourth is temperance, and that means self-control or self-mastery or self-discipline, not just letting our emotions, our passions, our desires uh, run away with it. In Christianity, there are Christian virtues, foundational Christian virtues, humility, We also talk about love as a Christian virtue, which again is produced by God the Holy Spirit, and mercy, which is an application of grace, as well as forgiveness. As you can see, when you talk about humility and love, mercy, forgiveness, all of those are integrated as part of understanding love. They're all related to these ideas. We talk about grace, forgiveness, mercy. They're intertwined. And so you cannot be gracious if you don't understand humility, if you're not humble. A humble person isn't gracious. They may seem to be gracious, but if they're operating on arrogance, they're just being manipulative. So true humility is not going to be manipulative. It is concerned not about controlling other people. It is concerned about serving other people. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Likewise, you younger people. So Peter is addressing those who are young in the congregation because younger people haven't lived long enough to be knocked down enough, and so they tend to be arrogant and proud. This is just a weakness of youth. And so he addresses the youth and says, you need to submit yourselves to your elders, So as he talks about humility, which is what comes in at the end of the verse, God gives grace to the humble, being humble, we see in this passage, is related to submission to authority, related to submission to authority. So it's related here to the church, the elders, the leaders of the church. And he goes on to say, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Because God resists the proud, the word there for resist is also used of troops lining up to go into battle against other troops. So it has that idea of God is going to make war against the arrogant. He has set himself against the arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble are those who are submissive to God's authority. Now, when we go back to this idea of being submissive to authority... We are all under authority. We're under all kinds of authority. First of all, we're all under the authority of God. And so every one of us is accountable to God. God is going to hold us accountable. And so that's the first area of authority. A second area of authority has to do with the nation we live in, under the government, the laws of of the government. We're under the authority of the government, the authority of the police. We're under the authority of the courts and the justice system. You also have authority in the family. You have authority from parents. You have authority also from other family members, grandparents and others, and we are to be submissive to those authorities. Uh, We are under authority in school. We have teachers. We have, uh, if we are involved in sports, you have coaches. If you're involved in Uh, Any kind of other activity, if you are learning skills, you're involved in teachers, whether it's the classroom where you go to school or whether it's something else, we're always under authority. We're under many different systems of authority. And if we don't learn to submit to authority, we'll never truly learn. Submission to authority is the key to learning and growing. It's a key to learning, hey, I'm wrong. There's a better way to do it. And that's part of humility is to recognize we don't know it all. We don't have all the answers. We have to sit and listen to those who know more and who will teach us. But in terms of spirituality, ultimately, we have to be under the authority of God. So Peter concludes in verse 6 by saying, Therefore, humble yourselves, which is another way of saying submit yourself to the power of God, to the authority of God, the mighty hand of God. Why? That he may exalt you in due time. We are all, all of us in our self-absorption, we get ambitious, we want to exalt ourselves, we want to be recognized, we want to be promoted, we want uh, all kinds of visual success. But here the key is spiritually, we are waiting for God to be the one to exalt us and we'll come back and see the ultimate example of that exaltation uh, before we finish up this evening. So in trying to define humility, what we see is that biblically, humility is not taking on some view of running yourself down or having low self-esteem or being spineless or weak letting somebody just take advantage of you and walk all over you. And that's a common misconception of what humility is. Humility is being willingly obedient to those in authority over us, starting with God. It is the attitude of wanting to help or serve others. It's the opposite of self-promotion, self-assertion, and self-absorption. When it comes to god it 's the desire to serve God, obey God, and to follow him. So when we think about David as a man after god 's own heart, what we 're seeing is that ultimately is talking about humility, the desire to follow God, and in the words of Jesus, to take up his cross daily doesn 't mean, mean he 's perfect doesn 't mean he doesn 't sin doesn't mean he he didn 't uh, disobey God in some horrible ways at times, which he did. But the bottom line for David is he wanted to serve God. He wanted to follow God. He wanted to obey God. And so that's the essence of what is meant when we talk about having a heart for God or a man after God's own heart. Humility is being willingly obedient to those in authority over us. It's the attitude of service, wanting to help others or serve others. It's the opposite of self-centeredness. It's the opposite of self-promotion, self-assertion, and self-absorption. So when it comes to God, it's the desire to serve God, to submit to his authority. And to do that, we have to know what God wants. We have to know, know his word. So ultimately, humility involves grace orientation. We have to learn that it's all about what God's given us. It's not about who we are. It's not about our talents, our abilities. All of us have great abilities in some areas. We have great talents. We have intellectual skills. We have physical skills. But that's not why we're important. That doesn't make us better than everyone. God has given us everything that we have. Whatever natural talents we have have come from God whatever spiritual skills, spiritual gifts we have from God uh, have come from God. And so humility involves that grace orientation. It's, I, it's not about me, it's about what God has given me. Uh, it involves submission to God's authority and submission to the authorities that God has ordained in a nation, in a family, in the military, in education, and it's foundational to being teachable. We'll never really learn anything and get do well in life if we are not humble. We have to be uh, hum- humble to grow spiritually, and we have to have humility to have any success in life. Now, all of that just gives us a definition so we understand something about humility. The next thing that I want to do is to try to put a picture, a physical picture on this somewhat abstract character character quality. How how can we see humility in action in the lives of certain people? So I took three examples from the Old Testament. And the first one is Abraham. Abraham is the first person we see a really clear picture of of humility. We have others that clearly were humble, but we don't get into as much detail in their lives as we do with Abraham. The story of Abraham starts in Genesis chapter 12, and if we read through it takes us through 10 chapters through chapter 22. And what God is doing in that process is he's taking Abraham, very early, he's probably in his late 50s or 60s when we some of these events take place, and he's calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land that God is going to show him. And God is making certain promises to Abraham. And the key promise is he promises to give him a multitude of descendants that God uh, God describes as 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 numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. This is a huge number of descendants. But Abraham's lis- listening to this and Abraham is old by this time. He's, he's in his late 60s. He's beyond childbearing years. Sarah has never been able to have children. How in the world are we going to have this promise fulfilled? He thinks it's a pretty good promise. I'm going to have a lot of descendants. Well, maybe I ought to help God out. God is going to bless the whole world through my descendants. So he decides he's going to, he, he's going to help God uh, bring this about and so in the first example in Genesis 15 he says God I've got a good idea it's going to be really hard for me to have kids hard for Sarah to have kids so why don't we take my servant Eliezer he's been with me a long time he's faithful he's obedient he's trustworthy I'll adopt him and he'll be the promise he'll be the seed that you have promised me and so God says says to him no uh, that's that's not going to work and so Abraham is being taught that he has to wait on God. He has to trust God that he can't make it happen on his own. That is pride. See, we want to help God out. We want to we have a great idea. God, you have a lot of great ideas. You you're pretty powerful, but I got a better idea. We we see that run through all of these examples in scripture. We all fail in in those ways. And so What happens is God tells him it's not going to be through Eliezer. And so another 10 or 15 years goes by. And God again, uh, now he's going to enter into that covenant with uh, with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And we have the actual literal cutting of the covenant where that, that is established. And again, he makes his promise. I'm going to bless you through a son. And in this process... Since chapter 15, Abraham has been again trying to help God and his wife's trying to help God. So Sarah came along and said, well, I can't have any kids. Why don't you take my servant uh, Hagar and you have relations with her? And then she'll have a son, and we'll raise him up as as your son. We'll help God out. We'll solve that problem. And so Abraham did what his wife said, and it just created a lot of problems. One of the reasons we have the whole Arab-Israeli conflict today is all goes back to Abraham trying to help God. And in spite of that, God comes to him and says, It's not going to be Ishmael. I am going to make this covenant with you, and it's going to be a descendant of you and Sarah. And so he makes that covenant with with Abraham, and time goes by again. And then Genesis 17, God uh, comes to Abraham again and says, Within the year, Sarah will be pregnant. And, of course, neither one of them believes it. Sarah's hiding behind the uh, tent covers, and she hears God's promise, and she just cackles. And so uh, they're going to end up naming the son uh, Isaac because that means laughter. And God says, What are you laughing at? I'm making this promise. So this will be fulfilled. So the promise is fulfilled. And a year later, she gives birth to Isaac, and he's the promised seed. And as time goes by, Isaac now is going to grow up. He's a young man. He's probably in his 20s, maybe in his 30s. And now God is going to come to Abraham and tell him something that will blow Abraham's mind. And so he says in... um, well, oh, I thought I had the first part of the verse there. I don't. In Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham and he says, verse 2, then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, how would you feel? Think about this. You you, you waited for years, 30 plus years, for this son to be born. This is where all your hopes and dreams are. God's promise is going to be fulfilled through this son. There's going to be a multitude of descendants. And now God says to kill him, and not just kill him. A burnt offering meant that Abraham would take Isaac, would tie him down to the altar, and then he would slit his throat. And the altar would be on a, there'd be a pile of wood all around the altar. And then after he slit Isaac's throat and Isaac bled out, then God would light the fire, which would completely consume the body of of Isaac as a burnt offering. And what's interesting is when Abraham was younger and he's thinking, I can help God. God's constantly teaching him, you need to depend on me. I will fulfill my promise. I will fulfill my word. You just let me handle it. Abraham reaches a point by by Genesis 22 that he is, is, um, is going to trust God, and he doesn't get upset. He doesn't try to get out of it or anything. He just immediately uh, trusts God and goes uh, along with God, takes the kindling, takes Isaac. They go to Mount Moriah, which is where uh, the modern, uh, where the Temple Mount is, and there he prepares the altar. He piles up the wood. Isaac says, "Well, well, Dad, where's the sacrifice?" And Abraham in Genesis 22 shows that he understands what's going to happen, and he says, "Well, God will provide the sacrifice." But what we learn from this. Is, exact, is what God is actually looking for. In Genesis twenty two twelve, we get the clue. When God stopped Abraham from killing Isaac, God said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. See, that was the test. The test was, have you learned humility? Have you learned to be obedient to me, even when... You don't understand it. It seems irrational, and I'm telling you to do something that goes counter to everything that that you've been taught. You're going to trust me no matter what. And trust is a key element in fearing God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God is being obedient to him, respecting his authority, and obeying him. So this is part of humility. And then... We learn from Hebrews in the New Testament that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So we know that this was a test. And he who had received the promises, that is the promises of the covenant, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that this is exactly what was going on. Abraham was being tested He knew that this test was all related to the promise of a son, the promise of the seed in the Abrahamic covenant. But Abraham thought it through, and in verse 19 we read that he concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So what this is saying is Abraham understood finally God's going to make good on his promise. God is going to... Promise the seed, Isaac's the seed, there's going to be innumerable descendants from Isaac, so even if I go through with this and kill him, God's going to bring him back from the dead. So he is totally relaxed when he is taking Isaac and uh, tying him to the altar. So this is a picture of his humility. He has learned to obey God and to trust him. Now the second example comes from his grandson, Jacob. Jacob was a twin. He was the younger of the two boys that came out. Esau's the older by a few seconds. And when Jacob comes out, he's grabbing at the heel of Esau. So this is why he's named Jacob. Jacob means a heel grabber, but that had, had a connotation. That's, that's a, uh, a way of talking about somebody who's trying to grab something that isn't theirs. And so it becomes a word for a supplanter. It's a word for uh, somebody who is a con man. He's tr- constantly trying to get what isn't his and make it his. And so this is his characteristic. And when we get later, you read through the whole story. Uh, when he finally leaves and runs runs away from Esau because Esau is threatening to murder him, And he goes up to his uncle Laban. Laban is more of a con man than he is. And more of a trickster than he is. And he cons, uh, he out cons the con man. And so there's a lot of humor in this whole section of Genesis. But God is teaching Jacob not to be the con man. Not to try to get things on his terms. And this is what had happened. Is before Jacob and Esau were born, God said the older that would be Esau would serve the younger that was God's statement that was his promise Jacob didn't have to make that happen but he thought he did he thought he had to manipulate the situation to be the uh, the first to get the inheritance of the firstborn God had already promised that to him by saying that the older would serve the younger so he tries to trick he he tricks uh, Isaac into giving him the blessing. And then later when uh, Esau is coming in from the fields and he's worn out from hunting and he's starving to death and uh, Jacob is cooking the lentil soup, uh, Esau says, sure, I'll trade you the birthright. Just give me something to eat. And he, he minimized it. But this is not how Jacob really got it. This is how Jacob was manipulating it But God had to knock this arrogance out of Jacob. And sadly, we all get to go through situations in life when God is knocking the arrogance out of us. It's it's not good to learn these things the, the hard way. God wants to knock that arrogance out of us to teach us to be submissive and totally dependent upon him. And so what happens is we see all these episodes that take place with Laban and where for twenty years Jacob has had to work for his uncle, and he is just mistreated and abused and taken advantage of, but what happens is he learns uh, he learns humility, and we see that in what happens in Genesis 33. Genesis 33 describes Jacob coming back to the land. Now he's got flocks and herds, he's got wives, he's got these all these children and but he's afraid because when he left after he had tricked Esau out of the birthright Esau was so angry he was threatening to murder Jacob he hated Jacob he was breathing threats and uh, his mother Rebekah said what you have to do is just get out of town leave the land go to Uncle Laban and until Esau calms down and so now he's coming back and he's afraid Esau's still mad at him Esau's going to kill him and so he sends ahead all of these presents to Esau. But when Esau comes into his presence, we're told in verse 3, then he crossed over before, before them, that is before Esau and all of his men, and he bowed himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. So it's a process. He's walking towards his brother. He bowed down, walk a little closer, bow down again, walk a little closer, bow down again. Why is it stated, why are we told that he did it seven times? Why is that that important? It's important because in the ancient world, if you were a lowly subject in a kingdom and you were coming into the presence of the king, then to show that you were an obedient, submissive citizen and obedient to the king, you would bow down seven times. That is a, an extreme show of loyalty and submission. And so that's exactly what what Jacob is doing. He is showing that he is he's submitting to Esau, and he's the firstborn now. He's got that inheritance, and yet he's willing to show this humility towards Esau, and not to take advantage of his own position to come back and and lord it over Esau. He has learned genuine humility over this course of time. So the arrogance and the self-absorption that had once marked Jacob is no longer there. He has learned genuine humility. What's interesting is in the last event that occurs in the previous chapter uh, east, um, uh, Jacob has stopped at a place on the other side of the Jordan, and there he has this encounter with God, where he he wrestles with God. And there we read in Genesis thirty two thirty, and Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I, which means face to face, in in Hebrew, and he says, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. He recognizes God has taught him humility, and now he is submissive. Now, this is what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 18. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If you think you're great, and you think you're God's answer to whatever, and you can get along all by yourself, and you're totally self-sufficient, then God is going to bust your chops. God is going to humble you. Uh, if anyone who exalts himself, God will humble. And he who humbles himself, then God will exalt them. Now, the third example is Moses. Moses, think about Moses. Moses is born in Egypt, he becomes adopted into Pharaoh's royal family. He is educated with the best education in Egypt. He is on track to be the ruler of the land. He has more wealth than anyone. He has more everything than anyone in Egypt outside of the Pharaoh because of his position. And when he discovers that he's really a Hebrew, he sees a, a, an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave. And so now he's going to solve the problem himself. He hasn't learned anything about God or trusting God, and so he goes and he murders the Egyptian taskmaster. That's a pure act of arrogance. Now, God has to humble Moses. So the first 40 years of his life, he is a prince of Egypt. The next 40 years, 40 years to learn humility, he knows he's the promised deliverer, but God says, I can't use you as the promised deliverer until I knock this arrogance and pride and, and uh Uh, self-sufficiency out of you. And so he goes and he's a shepherd. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody cares where he came from. All of his wealth is gone. All of his resources as a member of the royal family are gone. And he's just out in one of the lowliest, most hated professions in Egypt. Nobody in our culture... This would be equivalent to being somebody who's a garbage collector. You're just at the lowest rung of, of of society. And so that's where he is when, after 40 years, God finally calls him into this service that he's going to have because he's finally learned to to submit, to be humble, and to serve the Lord. And he is then going to take... Approximately two and a half to three million Jews out of Egypt, take them through the desert. I mean, some of you just got back from camp, and you had John. You had to deal with I don't know how many kids were there, thirty-five, forty kids, and and just think of all the wonderful headaches and logistics and everything involved with that, and the transportation, everything. Well, multiply that out to where you have three million, and all the problems, all the headaches, all the personal personality, conflicts, and everything else, and Moses handled all of that. That is a man who is strong, a man who knows who he is, a man who understands his authority, he has organizational skills, he's intelligent, Uh, he has all of this going for him, and yet what the scripture says about him in Numbers 12.3 is the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth, See, humble there doesn't mean somebody who's spineless, somebody who's weak, somebody who's who's walked over, somebody who's a doormat. It means he was the most oriented person to God's authority on the planet. He understood submission to authority, and so he was humble. The word there in the Hebrew for humble is the word anav. And it means the exact same thing. So when they translated the Exodus, they translated with it with this word prouse. Prouse is the noun, and then you have "proutes," which is the adjective. It's the same word, and it means humble. And it is translated sometimes gentle, sometimes with the word meek. Now, for the idea, the picture of the opposite of humility, we have Saul, King Saul. King Saul comes from a humble background, so to speak. He's from the smallest tribe, smallest clan. He's the youngest. He's a nobody, and so he's trying to uh, act with pseudo-humility when uh, Samuel picks him out, and he becomes king. God uh, anoints him as king, has Samuel anoint him as king, and eventually, and he does good at first, but then he gives in to arrogance. He thinks he is, he, he, he just swells up with pride in who he is and what he has accomplished. And so what happens is we see the blindness of arrogance. If you're arrogant, you will be blind to yourself. You'll be blind to your weaknesses. You will make serious, serious errors. And you will convince yourself that you're right because arrogance blinds us to truth. Look at what happens in 1 Samuel 15. You see the perfect example of the self-deception of arrogance. So God has sent him on a mission. mission is to absolutely destroy, annihilate, wipe out every man, woman, child, and all the livestock of the Amalekites. But he doesn't do it. He leaves the king alive, and he leaves a lot of the livestock alive because he rationalizes we can get something out of this. So God sends Samuel to confront him with this, and in uh, verses 18 and 19, you get the confrontation, you get the challenge. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? So evil is disobedience to God here, not killing every man, woman, child, and all the animals. Well, listen to how Saul answers him. He says, but I did obey the voice of the Lord. See, arrogance caused him to be self-deceived. He obeyed the Lord 98%. And said, well, that's good enough. Good enough for me, it ought to be good enough for God. See, his his self-absorption made him the authority and not God the authority, and he did what he wanted to do. So he tries to justify it, said, I brought Agag back. We'll, we'll get some good out of him. Maybe hold him for a ransom or something. So Samuel says to him, has the Lord so great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In other words, God's more concerned with you obeying him than he is with your acts of going to Bible class or acts of of, uh, of reading your Bible or going through the motions of Christianity. He wants obedience from the heart. And then he says in verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin as witchcraft. And stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. So arrogance is just a form of idolatry, and it is following in the path of Satan. That's why he calls it witchcraft. Now, what we see is that word that was translated meek for Moses, the the Greek word is praus. And Jesus is going to emphasize humility in the Sermon on the Mount. So we have verses like Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, socialists come along and just forget. They say, blessed are the poor. It's not talking about economics here. It's talking about the poor in spirit. They leave that phrase out or ignore it. The word for poor is somebody who is absolutely, totally destitute. They have no resources left. They have nothing in and of themselves to depend on. They don't have two pennies to rub together. They don't have anything whatsoever. They don't have a place to sleep at night, nothing. And it's used in terms of poor in spirit is the person who learns that they have no resources on their own to make life work. They have to be totally dependent upon God, not relying on anything that they have. And so it's an idiom for uh, humility. Blessed are those who are humble, truly humble, totally dependent uh, uh, upon God in order to make anything work. They have to totally rest in God. Two verses later, we have the phrase, blessed are the meek. Prouse, same word that's used to describe uh, Moses. And... and, um, in numbers blessed are the meek for they shall inherit shouldn't be inherit the earth it should be inherit the land that is the land that god gave to israel all this is in the context of god bringing christ bringing in the kingdom so the meek there is the idea of the person who is humble they're obedient to god they're the ones who will receive the inheritance this is a quote from Psalm thirty seven eleven, that the meek shall inherit the land. And also we see in Psalm sixty nine thirty two, the humble shall see this and be glad. That's parallel to the next line, you who seek God. So what is essential to humility? It is seeking God, putting God first. He is the focal point. So Jesus emphasized humility as one of his foundational virtues as we see is especially when he's teaching about following him and this was a major message that he gave for example in um, Matthew 11:28 he says come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you now what does that mean when you a yoke is something that is put on two oxen to join them together so that they will pull together to, to, to carry a load. And it became an idiom for submitting to the authority of the person who is driving them. Then they they did what they were told to do. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he is saying, submit to my authority. Submit to my authority and learn from me, for I am gentle. There's that word, uh, uh, Prowess. I'm gentle. It's I'm humble and lowly in heart. A synonym uh, for uh, humility. So Jesus says that the key is you have to submit to my authority and be humble. Again, we come back to this whole issue of submission to authority, and then he follows that up by um, by repeating it in the next two verses and using that same vocabulary. James talks about this as essential to learning the Word of God. Before we really learn the Word of God and grow spiritually, he says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. What that really means in the Greek is lay aside all the trappings of sin and arrogance and evil that's in your life and receive with humility the Word of God. You can't learn the Word of God if you're not humble. Paul also emphasizes this in 2 Corinthians 10.1. He says, I, Paul, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, using both of those two words, praus and tapenus. That's the key. Christ is humble and gentle. We're to imitate Christ. So that takes us back to understanding that command in 1 Peter 5.5, 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, but this applies to all of us because we all have problems with, with humility. Submit to, uh, submit to the authorities over you, submit to one another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The ultimate example that we have in the New Testament is that of Christ. And we see this in a couple of verses in Philippians. Philippians Paul is telling them they need to learn humility. And so he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. So when we get full of ourselves and we're ambitious and we think we know how to do everything and we're not we're we're going to go our own independent way, what the scripture says is don't do that. That's just self-centeredness, that's the opposite of humility, that's the path of Saul, not the path of David. In lowliness of mind, in humility, esteem others more than yourself. You're to serve others. Let each of you not look out for your own, not only for your own interest, but also for the interests of others. And then we have the example of Jesus. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, losing his life. So humility is obedience to God. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. That's that same word that we saw that's uh, related to humility. Uh, tapaino, or here it's the verb tapinao, as related to prouse. They're synonyms. So Christ humbles himself. What, was the, what did the scripture say? Humble yourself and God will exalt you. So Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, and then we see his exaltation at the end of that section. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So, the key issue to having a heart for God, being a believer after God's own heart, is 1 Peter 5 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. This is what David did. God was searching for a man who uh, was after his own heart, and he found David. David was totally humble, obedient to God. Again, that doesn't mean he didn't sin. He did horribly, but it meant that David was always ultimately devoted to God. That is the key to success in our life, the key to spiritual success. The key to success in everything is being submissive to the authority of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to look at this. It strikes each of us deeply because each of us struggles with key areas where we are arrogant, we're self-sufficient, we're self-absorbed, We think about our spiritual lives. We think about our lives in general totally in terms of what's best for us. And what these passages teach us is that if we are going to be a man or a woman after your heart, then we need to be submissive to you. We need to humble ourselves. We need to be obedient to you, submit to your word, submit to your authority. We need to think uh, more highly of you and your mission for us than we do for what we want to accomplish and what we want to get out of life for we are put here on this earth whatever we're doing whatever job whatever career whatever task we have ultimately we are here to serve you father we pray that you would uh, bring these things back to our minds that we would think about them and that god the holy spirit would drive them home in our souls and we pray this in christ's name amen